episode of Thick and Thin Hoops, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nitin. What's well, good, Nitin? What's up, man? You were, uh, you got to let the listeners know, you were in Chicago uh, for a bachelor party. We got to connect, but what did it feel like being back in the best city in America? What was that experience like? I mean, after, what, years and years away, you've been back here and there, but back to back to your mischievous ways in the city of Chicago, I should say. Yeah, man, it was great. I mean, I did come what last October, so not too long ago, but uh, it was it was a good time. I was there for a bachelor party, you know, got up to all the same sorts of shenanigans we used to do at Booth, so it was good. Uh, I need the listeners to know though that you bailed on Saturday night when you were supposed to meet us out at uh, Untitled, so I had to make a last minute trip to go see you instead of you coming to me, but uh, I'll I'll let you have a pass on that one. But clearly the age is uh, it's starting to get to you, man. Time. You, you so can't do fun. it the way you used to. It's funny you say that because Kush and I were going back and forth today because there's a rule that the uh, Chicago politicians are sort of trying to float there that's going to actually end the 5 a.m. nights uh, at, at all our favorite spots. So Social 25, Boss Bar, you know, all the hang up. They're trying to get rid of basically the rule that grandfathers them all in because last call in Chicago is 2 o'clock. And I was like, you know, old me would have been distraught by this, but you know, I gotta be honest, new me like just doesn't care. Um, and he was like, well, that was a big part of our our upbringing there in Chicago. I was like, yeah, that's true, but I mean, I was like, I don't know, I'm too washed right now. But now, if he hears that I didn't also didn't show up to Untitled on top of that, I may never live this down. And and that was like 10:30. It was not. We were not asking <laughs> you to come out at 1 a.m. It was 10:30. I know you had daytime plans and, and you're exhausted, but I saw the- Instagram posts from 3:30 a.m. though. So if I got into that web, I don't know when I would have been spit back out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And the, the 4 a.m. the 4 a.m. stuff, it's it is a good thing. Maybe it's going away because by the time you got out at four, by the time you got your chicken salad sandwich at 7-Eleven, and then by the time Gatorade. you played a game or two of 2K and watched uh, a Follies video, it'd be like <laughs> yeah, seven or eight in the morning. 6 a.m. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get up and do it all over again. You know, the funny thing is LA is actually uh, trying to pass a bill that extends the bars to 4 a.m. So California is going in a different direction. All, is all back. of California too? No, that was LA. I don't think San Francisco, but... but uh, no, 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 but even right LA, now all of California is 2 a.m. Or what? what is it? Yeah, yeah. So that's So it's interesting because like Virginia, for example, is 2, but D.C. is 3. But that's because it's a separate jurisdiction, right? But I guess statewide, I don't know if you can have different rules per different cities. Though I guess New York City is different than the rest of the state, so maybe that's the case. I think you can, but right now everything's two, you know. Damn. Um, all right, so the other the other big kind of uh, which update or or sort of per, you know event in your life was that uh, Keegan Murray was named uh, Summer League MVP. After a dominant performance leading the Kings to was this their second straight summer league title? No, we didn't win the title this year. The Blazers. Oh, the did. Knicks won. Oh, but no, Blazers. A oh, Blazers. Sorry, but then didn't Murray still win MVP? Murray won MVP. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> and last year, Davion Mitchell won co MVP, and we won the summer league title. So we're racking up the offseason hardware from so June like five through years August. Mitchell. Yeah, you yeah. guys own the summer. <laughs> 
This is like the old uh, Washington Redskins playbook. It's just dominate the offseason, get all the headlines, and then nobody cares what you do during the when the games actually matter. Oh, yeah. Especially when they'd beat, what, like Josh Norman, Albert Hainsworth. You'd always have these huge free agency signings, and it would never pan out to anything. You know, um, I was thinking, though, like, part the, – so the Kings needed good press, right, because today – the stat that was floating around the internet is that no active player has played against the Kings in the playoffs. So that's a tough one to come back from, but then you can always point to, look, we have back-to-back summer league MVPs. We're pretty much set up for the future. All our best players are like what? 26 and under like how old is Sabonis? 27, 26 or 25. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, we're set up. We got a two time all-star Sabonis. We got a bunch of young guns on the way. And for a guy that was getting clowned, let's start with Keegan Murray, getting clowned for taking ahead of Jaden Ivey. And now Ivey looked good in the couple minutes that he got the chance to play before going hurt. But Murray did exactly what he did in college, which is be very unassuming, but be very productive at the same time. So let's start with Keegan Murray. You got to have the floor with him first. What were your initial thoughts kind of starting from draft night? We we got a chance to connect after draft night, but then pushing that all the way into now. Um you know, seeing him in live action for a few games. I'll admit I was wrong. Uh, as I said on the pod, I was super disappointed we took Keegan, wanted Ivy. Actually, the Kings put out a, a video on YouTube, like kind of this behind the scenes video, and they show Adam Silver making the announcement, and they show a, a, the draft party, the Sacramento draft party, panning across the fans. And you can see me in that draft party just holding my phone and filming it. Really disappointed. Um, but I have to say that he's been amazing, man. He's been everything we asked for and more. I think the thing that's been the most surprising thing about Keegan Murray is everyone knew he was going to be NBA ready. He was one of the most NBA ready players. So him dominating summer league shouldn't be that big of a surprise. What I think is so tantalizing about him is it looks like his ceiling is much higher than I originally imagined, that anyone had originally imagined. He's got a whole skill set, tool set that... Yes, granted, it's summer league. Yes, it's inferior competition. But the shooting stroke was pure. Uh, catch and shoot, step back, off the dribble. He could hit threes in pretty much every single type of, of situation, as well as creating on the inside, playing good help defense. Uh, the passing is all right. I, I think the only negatives he had were his, his handles a little bit loose and uh, not really great when he's dribbling the ball, but he played well off of all the summer league guards who never put him in good positions, and yet he'd still drop 20, 25 points a game. So I think when you put him in NBA spacing, you put him in uh, you know, with shooters around him, the ball in a point guard like Fox's hands, he's only going to be better. And, and so I think that's what's so tantalizing about what we saw in summer league. So I think the interesting point and what I took away was similar in that if you counter the number three pick, Jabari Smith, with the number four pick, Keegan Murray, Jabari Smith was basically like living in an extension of college, right, where he had these shitty guards that couldn't get him the ball. In Murray's case, he had a similar situation with the guards because it wasn't like Fox and Mitchell were obviously nowhere to be seen in summer league, but he was still able to, to your point, get his looks and get his production, and that is encouraging. Like, I thought he was very calm under pressure. Was it the... um the game against the magic that went into yep. double overtime where, you know, he was kind of still getting into his move with like two seconds left on the clock to hit that game tying three. And 
He was never rushed. And one of the things that I thought he did well at Iowa was kind of play at his own speed. He was a beast in the transition, but even in the half court, he played at his own speed. Now, the problem with playing at your own speed is sometimes you can do that if you're bigger than everyone else. But when you get to the NBA and that's not the case, that ends up becoming a negative, right? People people loved Cade generally, but the one concern about Cade was his him playing at his own speed, so to speak. Was it because he just wasn't going to be, be the dynamite athlete? Now, Keegan is not on Cade's level as a prospect, but I think it was encouraging, at least against NBA bodies. You know, summer league is what it is. Like, we got to put the brakes on what it means. You know, Glenn Rice Jr. once won uh, summer league MVP and was out of the league like 12 months later. But I think I think you have to like what you see. And I actually liked Keegan Murray, but I was always confused when I looked at the numbers and I looked at the stats and like, you know, his advanced numbers were like Zion level at Duke almost, right? And you're thinking to yourself, it's like, okay, this seems to check a lot of boxes. Aside from the fact that he's a little older, he's 22. What else am I missing about this guy? Like, why won't he translate? I actually think, you know, when we were doing the mock draft pod, we talked about Paolo and and Jaden Ivey being kind of top two potential rookie of the year type candidates. I think you put Keegan Murray. I mean, the only reason he wouldn't be in that mold is because he's just not getting a ton of shots with all the other guys they have. But I think you could expect something similar in the sense of like the Scotty Barnes, he's productive and they're winning at a decent clip type, type, uh, you know, uh, that's that's going to be the candidacy built, built around, right? Versus a guy like Paolo who might average 21 a game for a team that wins 22 overall. So that that's, yeah. I think, something to be encouraged about for sure. He's second in betting odds right now. So the hype around Keegan Murray has definitely hit the national media. Uh, and like I said up top, the thing that I was most impressed by, because one of the knocks I had on him in college is watch a lot of his tape, a lot of his mid-range game, was kind of bullying smaller guys down low. Yeah, he had good footwork, but he could get kind of get to his spots pretty easily because he was always bigger. You're not going to be able to do that in, in the NBA. What I did like, though, is that versatility behind the three-point line. He's not a catch-and-shoot guy. He can step back, catch-and-shoot. Like That, to me, is something that's going to translate immediately. And so even if he struggles every other aspect of his game, he can be a 13, 14-point-per-game guy just with that shooting stroke and just with the spacing that the Kings are going to have this year. So that itself just puts his floor astronomically high. And he just seems like a good kid, man. Like I, the fact that you, t- you know, you talked about him being cool and calm under, you know, the pressure situations, even like Paolo, even Chet, even Jabari, granted, those guys are younger. They're frazzled. Sometimes they make poor decisions. Keegan is just he always makes the right decision it feels like and sometimes you want him to do more because he's not forcing it so yeah I, I think everything looks good right now of course summer league doesn't mean you're gonna be you know kevin knox dominated summer league but i think this is promising for sacramento and uh, i think we're all excited well look it's playoffs or bust right or at least playing or bust and it's 40 wins or bust it's uh, whatever yeah, that gets I mean, us it's 40 wins or bust but I'll come back to how damn deep the West is. It's like insane to try to figure out. Like you look at the Lakers who still have LeBron freaking James and Anthony Davis, and you can't figure out if they're in the top six or not. And frankly, if you polled every single you know person in the league, you'd probably have more people who say they're playing team than a playoff team right now. Yep. And the Kings are going to try to do this as like a death by numbers kind of thing where it's like they don't have maybe the top 20 guy on their roster, but they have three guys in the top 60 it's the, you know things like that it's like we'll see how that translates i 
you know, I expect the Kings to be good. I think I picked them to be in the play-in mix over Portland as of now. And Keegan Murray is certainly going to help. I, I got to think he would start, right? Like he would be a day one starter next to Barnes in the front court. Going into summer league, the prevailing thought was he would not start. Oh, but okay. he's been so good that I think he's got a good chance now. But it wasn't. I mean, who would you start then instead of him? You'd play Barnes at the four, Sabonis at the five, and then someone right. else at the three. Because is Mitchell and Fox? Are they both going to start then? No, you'd start. So or you go. You don't you have can't a three, go Fox but... and Monk really, can you? You could start Fox, Monk, and Herder at the three. Oh, I forgot Kevin Herder is on the yeah. team. But he's more of a two. He's just an oversized two more than a. To me, three. Fox, Herder, Barnes, Murray, and Sabonis has to be the starting lineup. So I think based on how Murray's played, I think that should be the case. Yep. And then in a way, you bring Mitchell and yep. Monk off the bench, and that actually is a nice tandem because Mitchell will cover up some of the defensive limitations for Monk, and Monk will be able to just go into pure shot creation mode. Yep. Mitch, uh, Mitchell, know Monk. Davis will do, but. Uh, so, and then you have Rashawn Holmes. It's a, it's a good rotation, honestly. Yeah. Um, so let's bounce around to the other parts of the top 10. So start at the top, Paolo, Paolo and Chet were both sensational, uh, for different reasons, but you know, Chet was the guy we got to see first. Cause he actually played in that, uh, whatever that like Salt Lake City Summer League was before Vegas. And Magic fans, before Paolo even took foot onto the court, were freaking the fuck out. And they were like, <laughs> we screwed this up. Like, this is a colossal disaster. Do you feel that way after Summer League in the sense of like, originally we both had Paolo 1, Chet 2. Has anything swayed you? I thought they were both really good, but they were very different. Um, and so they... They, they flourished in different ways, as much like they did in college. But did you see anything that particularly stands out that's like, hey, the reason I thought this was a weakness is actually not as much, or the reason I thought this was a strength actually wasn't as good at this? Like, where are you at with those two? And and I guess throw Jabari in there, though. I think at this point you could have to rank him a clear number three. I don't think it changed too much in my mind. Chet, look, Chet was sensational that first game, and everyone was losing their minds, and I was losing my mind. I was like, dude, this yeah, guy's he was great. hitting like KD Dirk level, like one footed fadeaways. Yeah, he slowed down a bit, um, and you know he had his struggles. Keegan Murray actually locked him up pretty well on on quite a bit of possessions. I think Paolo. The reason I think he Magic fans should still be high on him is the passing to me, and a lot was made of his passing, even on the broadcast watching uh, the games. It was unbelievable. Um, you know how Blake Griffin kind of became an underrated passer later in his career? Mm-hmm. He reminded me a lot of Blake in the way that he could kind of play up top, facilitate, get to his spots. He had athleticism. His problem sometimes was he tried to do too much. Yeah. Um, but even on the defensive end, he had some some key stops, some good timing. I think, I, I think what he showed in Summer League, two games, granted, um, Definitely warrants him being picked number one, but it doesn't change what we said coming into the draft that I still think Chet has a higher ceiling, um, lower floor, but still higher ceiling. And he showed that with just the dribbling defense, the shooting, all of that. I think the I want to jump in because I think the Blake Griffin comp is one I've never really thought about, but it's really apt. And, and, and I feel like the reason people didn't make it more was because everyone, when you think of prospects, you think of the younger version of the guy you're comparing them to in a way. 
and younger Blake Griffin was a jump out of the gym athlete. That's not who yep. Paolo really is. Paolo kind of plays more like Detroit Blake Griffin, which is not a knock because I know Blake Griffin's body was kind of breaking down by the time he got to Detroit. But a lot of people forget he made All-NBA third team in 2018. So I think just in terms of the passing, good, not great shooter, the shot creation, a little bit of a liability defensively, needs a rim-protecting center next to him. Like, you know, the whole thing with the Clippers was like, why can't we just get DeAndre Jordan out of the damn lineup and play Blake at small ball five? It didn't really work because he's not a good rim protector. He's not a great defender. I feel the same about Paolo where it's like, maybe they have an intention to play him at small ball five in certain lineups. I just don't think it'll work that well unless you have, like, you know, a Jonathan Isaac next to him where he can cover up some of those limitations. So, I actually like that comp a lot. And I think offensively, you know, Blake was like 24 and seven that first year in Detroit. That's kind of to me, 24, seven and five, I think. That's kind of what I think Paolo will do. Not not as a rookie, obviously, but like year two, year three, those are the kind of numbers I'd expect him to get to. And like he's uh, the Julius Randle comps, I really think is very much due to like he's so tenacious just around the basket, just like the. Sometimes it's heads down motor, which can hurt you. If, you know, Randall, that's clearly been an issue for him. But like, he'll just go and put you in the blender. And he's so physically gifted already when he's like 19, which is which is scary if you if you uh, if you're looking at what he could project to be just from a body standpoint in like five years. Um, Chet, on the other hand, sorry, go ahead. And I was gonna say that's the other thing that stood out was his size. And yeah, he's huge. We always knew he had size in college, but somehow he looked bigger than everyone in summer league. I guess because Duke is the the thing with Duke players is they're all high ranked prospects. They're all kind of bigger players, and so sometimes you go up against summer league guys and you end up looking bigger. Um, that's kind of the impression I got watching him. He just looked big. Yeah. And, like, I think part of that is, like you said, because in college you kind of expect everyone to look big. It's almost like watching Zion versus uh, random white kids in South Carolina in his high school tape. It was funny, but it wasn't jarring until you saw Zion in summer league or Zion as a rookie, and you're like, oh, fuck, he's still, like, way bigger and more athletic than everyone. And then it brings, like, a sense of realism. For me, that's what it felt like with Paolo, where he didn't stand out as much in Duke. Plus, you're playing with, like, five NBA guys, too, right? Like, that's the other thing. Um, But here in Summer League, where it's, like, still NBA bodies, if not NBA talent, and he's still, like, kind of getting to his spots and enforcing, you know, imposing his will, it's like, damn, this kid's special. Um, And then on the Chet side, I think the number one thing about Chet defensively was just, like, how is he going to guard Jokic? How is he going to guard Embiid? I'm less worried about that, like, Find me a center who can guard either of those guys one-on-one credibly. Like, Rudy Gobert gets stuffed in a locker a lot of times by them, and he's three-time defensive player of the year. To me, I'm more interested with how good he is at getting to the ball from wherever he is within that restricted area. That was always his strength. It's like he may not, you know, sort of – you can back him down, but his length and his anticipation is so good – that he's going to block the shot or alter the shot, even if you are able to quote unquote, get to your spot. That was very, very evident. Like he was getting kind of pushed and then still blocking the shots down low. I think he did that to like taco fall a couple times and like other guys. And then the, the worry I actually had offensively is those jumpers look great when they go in, but if they're a sign of the fact that you can't get around guys because of the, your lack of size and athleticism, that's where I start to get really concerned. Because you can have a hot shooting stretch, but that's not really the way you can get efficient baskets. With Chet, 
I mean, he's going to, he has limitless range. He shot 40% from three as a freshman at Gonzaga. He's going to have more ball creation opportunities, but that was the one thing I worried. I was like, he wasn't getting around guys to the basket as, as easily as I was hoping it would be. That's definitely a concern because you'd hope to see some of that in summer league, like before you get to the NBA. And we didn't see much of that. That being said, his handle and his fluidity surprised me. So you now there are a couple of people who threw out the Durant comps just because they're both skinny entering the NBA. And I think we both laughed at it at some point. Like Durant is yeah. not the comp for Chet and he still isn't. That being said, don't tell me you didn't see a couple of those plays where he looked like Kevin Durant, like Durant. the same kind of fluidity, getting to a jumper and hitting it. And I think just seeing that in, in these games and the fact that he has that in his bag, I, I think it's going to be really valuable. But you're right. If he ends up becoming just this jump shooting five, that limits his ceiling. He's got to be able to do some kind of work in the mid-range down low, not necessarily posting up guys, but he has to have a game in, in, the, in the post somewhat. Side note, what in the world allowed or gave the Thunder the notion that Josh Giddy should be playing in Summer League? Like, he was dominating out there. Like, it was a joke. But he's already, what was he, first team all rookie or second team all rookie last year? Like, didn't he already kind of prove that he didn't need to be in that setting? And, like, with him and Chet on the floor, plus they had Jalen Williams, who looks great. Drafted at 12, two picks after uh, Johnny Davis, uh, a.k.a. Garrett Temple. Um, oh, we'll get to Johnny Davis. Don't worry. It's it's the uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, that Thunder team was so stacked when all those guys were playing. It was pretty funny because some other teams are obviously going to bring no namers. Um, but but yeah. So that I mean, certainly that helped Chet as well because he's playing with like a true like premier NBA passer, which I think a lot of the guys like we talked about don't really have that luxury in summer league setting. Yeah, and it's funny. And Goody stood out, and obviously he would because he was really good as a rookie. Then you have guys like RJ Hampton, who also top draft pick and still continues to just not seem to get it. And he was horrific in some of these games. Just decision making. So it's like this guy's been in the league. He was a high I think draft this is pick. his third year, isn't it? Third year. Yeah. And and so you also have guys like that, which are like, dude, if you can't get it getting if you can't get together now in your third season in summer league, you're not gonna I'm very concerned about RJ Hampton. I was high on him coming into the draft, um, but something about, I don't know, maybe it's like something about these guys who don't go to the traditional route. Everyone's stock drops beyond Jalen Green, who got to, you know, who played at G League Ignite and still went number two. Feels like Kuminga stock dropped. Um, you know, Jaden Hardy stock dropped. We've seen it in the past with guys who went overseas like Brandon Jennings and all these dudes. And I'm just wondering if something like the developmentally that year where you're not playing, like he played in what New Zealand or something, he probably got yeah. sparse minutes. Like everyone's like, well, you know, you're playing against adults and grown men and blah, blah, blah. But I do feel like developmentally there's something that hurts you because so many guys are like top, top prospects and they all fall from where they were projected in high school. And RJ Hampton is just like the next example of this. Well, Giddy is the other example where he went higher than he should have. True. True. Coming from Australia. Yeah, um, and I guess Dyson. But he is Australian. Australian. I don't know what that – I don't know if that's worth something. But, but isn't RJ like 10, Hampton from New Zealand or no? No, man. The guy's super American. Oh. <laughs> he was born in freaking 
He's born in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> Five-star recruit at Little Elm High School in Little Elm, Texas. That sounds like okay. he should be on Friday Night Lights, not on whatever <laughs> yeah. New Zealand team you went to. Um, um, so let's talk so Jabari. Then, yeah. Okay, let's, yeah, let's go to Jabari first, actually. Jabari, so um, there's a set of players who get an incomplete because they just got hurt, like, right away. Shaden Sharp, um, you know, Dyson Daniels rolled his ankle. Jaden Ivey. Jaden Ivey got hurt early. In my opinion, Jabari almost gets an incomplete, too, because defensively, I thought he looked good. Offensively, it just it's clear that he needs somebody to set him up in a way that nobody on the Rockets roster was capable of. Now, you kind of wonder for a guy who was rumored to go number one overall for so long, you'd like him to have a little bit of like ability to get his own looks, which is something I harped on certainly pre-draft was I was a little worried about, you know, throughout the Ryan Anderson comp on offense. I thought defensively he looked really good, but offensively it's a work in progress until he can learn to put the ball on the floor. Yeah. Defensively he was a stud, which is awesome. The, the shooting, um, It'll come with better guard play, like you said, uh, getting better looks. And he just wasn't fed the ball. Like that team, for some reason, would not get him the ball at all. At the same time, everything we worried about looked true. The shot creation, the limited ceiling compared to Paolo. I think what you said at the top about him firmly, at least as of now, planting himself in that three spot compared to what Mm -hmm. we saw from Chet, Paolo, I think that makes sense. But if I'm a Rockets fan, I'm not, you know, upset about that. I think he's got a lot of promise. But it was surprising to me because in Auburn, he, I know he's not the kind of shot creator like Paolo or offensive creator like Paolo was. He still did a lot more. And I think this, he turned into that jumbo Ryan Anderson, your comp in the summer. He was literally just sitting on the perimeter waiting for the ball to get swung to him. But I, I think it's incomplete. It's probably the right grade. He'll probably be fine. Well, I think it's – yeah, I mean, look, I think it's certainly – it's not concerning at this point, but it's funny because Rockets fans were probably sitting here being like, holy shit, Paolo's going to fall to us at three. Like, he's not even in the conversation for one and two. This is crazy. And all of a sudden, like hours before the draft, the whole thing flips. And then you're thinking, well, if Jabari was supposed to go one, maybe he'll go two now. But it's like, nope. OKC was locked on Chet no matter what. So, you know, I think if I were to guess how the three of them will shake out, I would actually rank Jabari third best career. Um, This isn't reactionary to Summer League. It's what I said, you know, all summer. But, like, I wonder how they must feel because they're looking at it like, damn, if we had Paolo and Jalen Green, like, that's like the evolutionary, I don't know, uh, Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, back to your Blake Griffin comp. Like, that's the evolutionary, like, you know, awesome guard, awesome forward. Kind of, actually, it's like Penny and Shaq in a way. Um, and <laughs> Very high praise, sorry. Um, I just got, you know, Paolo in the pinstripe blues in Orlando has <laughs> got me in my feels. But, you know, I think, I think that must be such a swing of emotions. And now you're just sort of sitting on pins and needles a little bit because, again, Jabari's going to be a really good player because of his shot and because of his defense. But for him to be the type of superstar you need or the type of star you need to kind of turn this thing around in Houston. Like you're not going to get that many more top five picks. Well, maybe, I mean, who knows, but like in general, you can't just count on like three to four years of that developing because at some point 
something will happen to shoot you up or a guy on your team will maybe get hurt or, you know, who, who knows. But so like, you kind of really need to hit on this if you're going to rebuild through the draft. And so they're there for them. It's not like, will he be a 17 and nine with elite defense? It's, can he be like a 25 and 12? Can he be like an Anthony Davis? Right. That's, that's what you're wondering because that's what you need. If you expect him and green to kind of be foundational for your, for your next you know wave of growth for this team. 100%. And, and where do they pick Green at? He was four? Two. No. Two. two. Yeah, and, and it should be two. noted they took Green over Evan Mobley, who I love Jalen Green, but you play it back. Maybe they go Evan Mobley, Jaden Ivey. Do you prefer that two-man versus Jalen Green and Jabari Smith? I mean, it's early, you know, but I I, I agree. When you you only have like kind of like that four-year window to get a couple top five picks because you're just going to be too – you're just going to be too good to do this year after year. And I think with all these guys, I mean, every team is like this. Orlando, they've got to hit. It looks like they hit on Paolo, but Jalen Suggs was their other big pick last year. And guess who they could have had? Scotty Barnes. Uh, yeah. oh, no, no, no. no. Well, Scotty I mean, Barnes, well, Scotty Barnes went had. ahead. But yeah. theoretically, he should have been dropping to, to Orlando. Right, but uh, they could have had Kaminga and Wagner, right? Like that would have been a hell of a combo. Yeah, so I mean, I think with all these teams, uh, they've a lot of these bad teams are exciting on paper in this upcoming season because they all have a couple of high draft picks, exciting young prospects. But you're right, some of them, those guys don't pan out, and you top off as a 40 win team, and then you get stuck in kind of no man's land, and you have to ship these players off, rebuild again, or blow it up. And so it's always funny because every offseason we're like, there's five, six young teams, like the Pistons are another one we talk about in terms of. Cade, Ivy, Jalen Duran, but a lot of these teams in three years will quickly realize they're not going anywhere and they're going to have to shake things up. And Houston could very well be in that situation, depending on how Jalen Green and Jabari Smith turn out. Well, in the 16 years that the Kings have missed the playoffs, right? How many top five picks in those 16 years have you had? Fox, Cousins. Fox, Tyreek, Cousins, Bagley, and... Thomas Robinson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thomas Robinson was. Ben McLemore was six or seven. I think uh, he was seven. Willie Cauley-Stein was six. Uh, so we've had a lot in the top seven. Stauskas was seven? No, he was ten. No. Right? Eight. No, he was eight. 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 So we've had a lot in the top seven, eight. But top but five. we know how much it drops box, off but... after top three or five, right, in terms of star likelihood. And so even if you're bad for years on end, you can't really count on a ton of blue chippers that come every year. Like it's very rare to do what OKC did, which is like Durant, Westbrook, Harden three years in a row, because at some point Durant would be good enough to have lifted them. It just happened to take a couple years for him. Right. And if Jalen Green is that guy and, and Jabari is good enough, they may go, you know, 32 and 50 in, in a couple of years. And then suddenly they're picking seventh and that changes the calculus for them. I think the other thing is that could help or hurt these teams is the draft odds, lottery odds are much more flat, right? So right. you're going to see yeah. teams jumping and teams sliding a lot more often. So you can't bank on that either. Even if you suck next year, third worst record, can't bank on getting the third pick. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of the sixth pick or top six picks, Ben Matherin, he didn't play a ton, but he's going to be special. Um, I don't know what he's going to be yet in terms of like, is his ceiling multiple time all-star? Is it like 
you know, just an awesome guard who's sort of the third or fourth option on your team, maybe an all defense team in the future, that type of thing. But I think I'm just so excited about him and Hallie. I mean, I know how that's still kind of a soft spot for you, but I think they complement each other really well in that backcourt. And the Pacers moving off Brogdon, even though that was a shit return, was as much about just freeing up 35 minutes a game for both of these dudes than anything else. But what were your thoughts about Mather? I mean, you saw him a bunch at Arizona in college, but do you still feel bullish on him? Did you see anything that gives you pause? I probably saw Matherin more than any top prospect in the draft simply because UCLA played Arizona a lot. I'd catch the occasional Pac-12 game in Arizona on TV. Uh, he he definitely looks like everything he was made out to be. He's aggressive. He's he's a fluid athlete. He's fearless. Um the shooting can come and go. He can make some poor decisions, but all that can be cleaned up. I think just the attitude. And, and then Howley is, like you said, a smarter player that can balance Matherin out. And I think that combo is going to be a, a really good duo. Uh, and, and I think Matherin, everyone was kind of high on him. It's just he's one of those guys that it's hard justifying going in the top three, four. But at the same time, I think everyone thought he would not bust. Like there was very little chance of him being totally bad. Like maybe he's just a role player. Yeah, But I think the way he plays is going to keep him in the league for a long time. So it was definitely a, a good showing by him. Yeah, I thought that, uh, you know, especially with a guy who's such a willing passer in Halliburton, I think that's going to really set him up well, whether it's on the catch and shoot, the slash, et cetera. Indian is an interesting team, and maybe this is – we don't need to get to Johnny Davis, uh, who, like I mentioned – No, we're going to get to Johnny Davis. Don't worry. I can't even think about what just happened. But – I was just thinking about Indiana if they had gotten Aiton, right? I would have been really excited about this team's prospects because you look at it like, well, Aiton is not a win-now player, meaning he doesn't move your your timeline up more than you want it to. He's still 23. He's very productive. I thought he was getting really, really underrated because of you know sort of an uneven season. But, oh, by the way, they won 64 games, um, and he was 17-10 and 10 with great defense. But nonetheless, that team would, with Halliburton, Aiton, um, Matherin, you know, Osei Brissett, whatever you could get for Heald and Turner and trades, um, starting to build something, right? Unfortunately, you know, Phoenix match, which is kind of what they had to do, and I get that. But from the perspective of Indiana's team building, I think they need to suck basically one to two more years, which they should be comfortably able to do. Um, and then, you know, the 23 class, the, what is there, six, seven teams that are gunning hard for Wembenyama. Indiana is going to be one of those. And if they could add him, suddenly you've really changed the ceiling for this roster. Yeah, this is another, I mean, there's just so many of these teams that uh, look promising on paper. I think the question for Indiana is what do they do with Buddy Heald, Turner? Because right now they're still too good to really drop out. I think they need to move those guys, um, you know, then shut down Halley early and, and do all those things. But so many teams are going to be in those sweepstakes. Uh, well, Turner, will usually, Turner will usually self-select himself out of this situation. <laughs> like he doesn't like playing all that much, but Buddy is like an Iron Man in a way compared to today's NBA players. Like he plays, you know, most games. Um, you look at his like entire career. Check that he's played 82, 80, 82, 72, 71, 81 in his career. That's unheard of in today's day and age. 
Meanwhile, Turner plays like half the games every season. So, yeah, they have to trade heel for sure. And Turner will probably just have plantar fasciitis and miss like six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the funny thing about Buddy is he plays a lot, but there gets to be a point where you don't want him to be playing. Yeah, it's diminishing <laughs> returns. Well, you do yeah. if you want Wembenyama. Yeah, that's true. Um. All right, let's talk Davis. Quickly. Let's talk Johnny uh, Davis. So b- before you give me your opinion on Johnny Davis, I will admit, I thought he was going to be a stud. But I only watched one game where he was playing, but he looked lost, struggled to get separation. Um, so I don't know, but you probably watched more Wizards Summer League. What were your thoughts? And and do you, I mean, I know a lot of people said he didn't perform well, but it's a small sample size. Is there any real concern here? There's major concern it was worse than what people are making out to be they've already started floating out the back tightness thing to try to give take some pressure off the kid he was big 10 player of the year in a conference that had keegan murray had Jaden ivy so you're certainly feeling pretty good about it he dropped 37 versus purdue that was kind of like his flagship moment and dominated ivy in that team that year that game and so it's like okay this is a guy that can he reminded me a little bit of devin booker in that his shot from three point was pretty erratic and Booker as sweet as his stroke was only recently became a great three point shooter before that it was like 32, 33%. You can go look at the numbers and now he's great. But for a while it was like a sweet stroke, but only from mid range was it really effective. That was kind of what you got with Davis. Um, And he was a tenacious competitor, like defensively just effort level, really, really solid, which is something we need. All those are the good things. The NBA sometimes can be very simple, especially if you're a perimeter player. Can you got beat your man or can you not? And there was nothing to indicate that Davis had even a prayer in hell to get around like NBA defenders because he was getting stymied like it was it was basically like going back to t- 2K references only that you and I probably get, but you know when you're creating a player in 2K and like you do the draft combine and your guy is sick because it's trying to design to be like, okay, get a tight pick, but you're still like a 65 overall and you look awesome in the draft showcase and then you go to your first NBA game and you're being guarded by like Paul George and then yeah. you just like cannot get around him because you're 66 overall or whatever. That's honestly how Johnny Davis looked in summer league. Like couldn't get by anybody. His shot wasn't falling. He can't shoot from three to begin with. He was turning the ball over totally like out of sorts and i think he he went you know one for nine two for 11 and like three for seven in the three games he played before they mercifully shut him down the wizards are one of the strangest run teams that i think i know like on one hand they've made the playoffs in five of the last nine years on the other hand, they're totally aimless, totally directionless, like literally playing for the middle. That's all they're aiming to do. And if you look at the last four draft picks, including Johnny Davis, so I'm talking Rui Hachimura, Denny Avdia, Corey Kispert, and now Davis, all top 15 picks. Three of them were top 10 picks. All they're trying to do is draft like good character guys who have high floors, low ceilings. They have no one that can like, and it's like, now you think about like, oh, well, we need to get involved in a Kevin Durant trade, or we need to get involved in like, you know, like a Donovan Mitchell trade or DeAndre Ayton when he was potentially available. And, or like, I don't know, even freaking Kyrie Irving, if you want to take a shot, right? Put some actual star power next to Bradley Beal after you just gave him a quarter billion dollars. 
there's no one to trade. Like nobody in DC gives a shit about any of these players outside. Like Wizards fans think that Rui is like the next Kawhi and Denny is the next like Andre Karolinko. Meanwhile, nobody even would ever put those two in the same sentence. And now we had one more in the fold in Johnny Davis, who again projects to be maybe fine. Like I'm sure he'll figure it out and sort of be productive at times, but there's, I can't believe how quickly my excitement was zapped when I saw him try to go around like defenders. It was just not happening. And that, that is the part. If you want to point to one thing that's very concerning, the shot, yeah, sure, you can figure it out. But the lack of one-on-one creativity is potentially a death sentence for, for a guy of his size and, and sort of what he's supposed to be doing. And that's what he built his game off of. Not that he had some deep bag, but... Like you said, he wasn't a good three-point shooter. It's about just that mid-range game, being able to score efficiently, effect or not efficiently, but effectively against all competition. And if he can't do that in summer league, that's that's worrisome. But let me ask you this. Is there someone else that you thought was in play for that 10th pick that now, at least from summer league returns, you think you could have had? Like I know Jalen Williams played well, but was he even on your radar or... He was not on my radar. Granted, I am, as we know, not really a uh, big college guy. So it's not like I would definitely be like, oh, you know what? Let me go deep into the scouting. So Jalen Williams is certainly the one that's sitting there like, man, I wonder what he could have been like because he's at least plays the same position. And then the other guy I was thinking about was A.J. Griffin, who went to the Hawks. And like, I don't know, like A.J. Griffin has had a bunch of knee issues. And so I'm not worried about him necessarily as like a huge like this is going to haunt us forever. But from the beginning, I think I was pretty clear that this was like an eight-person draft. Like, I really thought it fell off after the, you know, Daniels and, and, and Sharp. And I really wanted us to make a move for Sharp if he fell beyond five. Now, Sharp looked horrible in like the few minutes he played with Portland. But it was like legitimately a few minutes. I'm not going to extrapolate from there. Um, and I think that's the kind of guy that you have to look, look, listen. If you're the Wizards and you have this massive Bradley Beal contract, you've never signed an impact free agent in the entirety of your franchise history. You're not going to suddenly start now. You have to try to find a second guy next to Beal, and the only way to do so is to take chances in the draft. It's the only chance you can get to get a Kawhi at a 15, Clay Thompson at 11, freaking Rudy Gobert at 27. Like you have Donovan Mitchell at 13. Like if you don't take those kind of high upside players, you'll never really get to maximize star talent around Beal. And all these down the middle, down the fairway type picks are just going to do absolutely nothing except make us go 42 and 40 and be competing versus Indiana and, you know, the nine ten spot once again. And that's why I think AJ Griffin made a lot of sense because if you took away the medical red flags, which are serious, right? And the knees and all that, he's a guy that if, if he can get over those knee and health concerns, he could easily be that high ceiling prospect. He is such a dynamic shooter and player on offense. I was surprised he slid as far as he did, but but yeah, I man, think it was that, a, I think it was a knee trouble, right? Like you have two ACL injuries before you even yeah. That's what it's, it's a, you're taking a gamble. It's like Michael Porter, though, right? Like and then Michael Porter Jr. The the jury's still out, but that's an example of you take a risk on a player with the medical history and that either way gives you higher upside. Michael Porter Jr. went one pick before the Wizards, who took Troy Brown, who had a second round grade on him, and is now in his like hundredth team already. But they already came out and said they weren't going to take Porter if he slipped. This is the kind of thinking that will forever fuck us and forever put us in this like eight to twelve range in the conference. 
Michael Porter may be a huge bust, and they just gave him 170 million. He's already missed one of those seasons, right? But if you don't try, you're never going to get star talent. Like I don't understand what's so hard to understand about this. Yeah, if you're not willing to bottom out, I mean, the, look, the Kings are in the same position. If we're not willing to bottom out, that's the whole reason I wanted uh, Ivy. I saw Keegan Murray as safe floor, limited ceiling. Go for the star. Go for sharp. Even I don't care. Take yeah. a chance. Because if you're the Kings are always trying to make the playoffs, they're never going to bottom out. Uh, so it's the same situation. I, I get it. It's frustrating. Well, and, and that's the thing, right? Like, if you don't want to bottom out, then you either need to trade up for picks, you need to do something, you need to make go for a home run. Like, Tommy Shepard has hit a lot of singles and doubles, but that doesn't help if, like, you're, you're, you know, you have like the seventh most powerful lineup in the sport. You know what I mean? It's like singles and doubles are fine, but if your pitching sucks, you're still not going to get the runs you need, right? Um, and and that's that's the part that I just get frustrated about. And I think you know, everyone who's like, "Well, I know you're so pessimistic." It's like, well, you know, you haven't been in the playoffs in 2006. I haven't seen a 50 game winner since 1979, which was 10 years before I was born. So there's reason to be a pessimist when you're talking about some of these franchises. Can I say one thing about summer? Do you have any other prospects you want to talk about? Or no, I'm fully I, out of uh, I'm fully out of uh, summer league takes right now. Um, summer league, if you like everything across the NBA, you can argue is worse than it was. I don't know since Jordan's heyday, right? If you talk about just the viewership, you talk about. Um, the dunk contest, right? All these different things. You talk about like some of the the players, the way they the player empowerment. You can even argue the one thing that I think has aged only better and better every single year is summer league. Mm-hmm. Summer league has become a spectacle. It is amazing how many teams have players there. Like every team had like three or four guys that they'd always pan to, showing support. I don't know who the Wizards had, but. Um, like even the Pacers, right? Like obviously Halliburton would be there. Like Buddy Heald was never known as a chemistry guy. Always somewhat of a little bit of a malcontent. He's there rooting on the guys. Every Everyone, like all the podcasts you've been listening to, you hear all these stories of running into the current NBA players and casinos, all that. And I think I just feel like this year, if you compare this to Summer League 10 years ago, there's so much more hype and so much more attention paid to how these guys actually perform. Like, you're already writing Johnny Davis off after three games. People are already proclaiming Paolo and Keegan to be amazing. And I, and I just think that Summer League as a product has become so, so good. But what are your Dude, thoughts? Dude, it used to be, like, borderline, like, AAU tournament-level organization. It certainly wasn't LeBron and all these dudes. Like, everyone's dapping each other up. Which begs the question, why hasn't it always been like that? Because Vegas in the summer, like, you got the pool parties, you got EBC, like... The concept, and it's not like it just got to Vegas. It's been there for a long time. The concept seems like it would <laughs> succeed forever and ever, but it really just got tight over the last, like I, I want to say, five to ten years, kind of. Um, and now it's incredible. Which, speaking of which, it's it's absurd that you and I haven't gone. Like we need to get press passes. We need to do live shows. Like we got to figure out how to like turn this into the mismatch or something because I even if you're only there for the first four days, because now there's load management in summer league itself, which is amazing. Um, you have to be there for that first like week essentially to see all the top guys play two or three times. 
And that's when all the writers, like you said, all the stars are, are going to be there. You're going to run into someone even inadvertently. We absolutely need to do that. And and the thing is, if you follow basketball enough, it's not just the players. I mean, I'll geek out if I see, yeah, Chris Vernon and Kevin O'Connor or like Ryan Russillo, right? Like just even the media guys who we all follow, we know them by name and face. Seeing those guys, seeing the players, seeing the coaches, seeing the GMs, it's just and and uh, if you, you watch the games, there's so many different jerseys. It looks like the the NFL or NBA draft. You know how everyone shows up in their jersey, rooting yeah. for the team. It's just like the sea of different jerseys uh, at all these games. Um, yeah, man, I think yeah. it's just it's just such a good product. The NBA needs to do more around Vegas. Like as long as they don't have a team there, they need to like like they, they like the. All-Star game should not be in Cleveland, respectfully. It should not be in Charlotte. It should not be in Minneapolis. Like, I get it. Whatever. Even Chicago, which is a huge city, Chicago in February is not where guys want to be, believe it or not. And so it should be in, like, L.A., Vegas, Miami, NOLA, just forced city rotation, something like that. And who cares what the product would look like, but just, like, the the the, the – pomp and circumstance would be the level you want to generate the type of eyeballs you you're hoping for. Absolutely. Like I get it. If the Super Bowl is going to be in Indianapolis because the revenue it brings to that city, the tourism, it's a week long event. The all-star game doesn't have that kind of pull. So you're telling me that not having it in Cleveland is going to do Cleveland this big disservice. No. What you book a couple extra thousand hotel rooms in one weekend, but like that's, yeah, to me, there's no reason it should ever go to any of these cities besides it should be L.A., Vegas, Miami and just rotate. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a event based socialist, uh, essentially, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I have the same take about the Olympics and the World Cup. Like those should never be in these random countries that can't support the infrastructure. It doesn't make any sense. It's it's, it's insane concept. USA, Germany, Japan, England, France probably it like these stadiums are just sitting empty in brazil for what so they could have had like two-year run of bliss like it doesn't make any sense yeah that, that's a whole nother issue you're talking about infrastructure um but yeah uh, totally that's agree. a broader point but still it's about where people want to be and what can support that activity yep um all right let's quickly bounce around the league uh to a couple other topics here DeAndre Ayton mentioned him previously, um, signed the offer sheet four years, 133 million with Indiana. Phoenix had no choice, right? They had to max. They couldn't let him walk for absolutely nothing when they already lost JaVale McGee. They screwed this up so badly, but you know, 133 million can make a lot of amends. And so I think they're coming back. They're, they're sort of still as loaded as they were with 64, the 64 win team question was just going to be, I think Chris Ball's health. Um, but what'd you make of that? And I guess, what does that say about the broader chance that Phoenix ends up being a destination or not for, uh, for Durant? I don't know about the Durant thing anymore. Um, I, I still don't see anything happening anytime soon, but with Aiden, it's weird how we got here, but it makes sense. Um, makes sense for him to get paid, makes sense for them to, to run it back as a team. The thing I wonder, though, is I wonder if the cracks have already been kind of now they exist in the foundation. And this is a team and like this is a staple of Chris Paul teams. 
talent always looks good. But once there start to be those murmurs of locker room dissent or things, you know, all this stuff that happens behind the scenes, all those teams collapse. It happened in the clip with the Clippers. It happened with the Rockets. And I'm not saying it's going to happen with the Suns, but last postseason we saw signs that this team is not all in it together. You don't go down 30 at halftime in Game 7 at home scoring only 27 points unless there is broader tension in that locker room. And I think Aiden getting paid, bringing him back, I don't think it fixes everything. That doesn't mean Phoenix won't win 60 games next year. That won't mean that doesn't mean they won't be a juggernaut. But to me, I still now will have concerns about them moving forward after this whole saga. So even though they're the same team that they were last season, this whole situation has been kind of weird to me. I felt that the window closed last year. Um, getting smoked by Dallas like that. I don't even know that they would have beaten Golden State, honestly, even if they had sort of limped through Dallas. It just feels like Golden State's defensively was locked in and Steph has owned Chris Paul since you know the start of time. But, you know, they had to bring him back. I don't see them, you know, I wouldn't put them in the top two or three in the West for me. Uh, I think that's Golden State, the Clippers, and the Nuggets in some order. Um, maybe Phoenix is fourth right there. Um, but I think... You know, you never know which injury will pop up, you know, which player will get traded, whatever. And so you have to bring back the core and just try to ride this out. I mean, to Sarver's credit, everyone called him cheapskate for like 20 years or 15 years, and he has been. But they're now $15 million over the luxury tax, which, by the way, this is what further complicates a Durant trade because you're going to be only adding salary if you do that. And he's just willing to pay the tax now. I'm not sure how much higher he's going to go. So. All that to be said, like there's going to have to be a three or four team deal if it brings Durant in. I still think Durant's best place, and I've said this from the beginning, is just to stay in Brooklyn. But you know, good move from 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 Phoenix, and and something they should have just taken care of previously. I know they didn't want to pay the fifth year and all of that, but why drag this out to a point where now it's like this weird, ugly resolution, and everyone's going to try to save face and say this was the plan from the beginning when clearly it wasn't. They obviously took trade calls on him at the deadline, and they did it again uh, this summer. And there were hit pieces out on Aiden that seemed like it was being yeah. leaked by Phoenix. I mean, I don't know of if that's course. true, but it it seemed like they were trying to highlight why he was the issue. He had friction with Monty Williams. He was not putting in the work. He was playing too many video games. Like, So, yeah, the whole way it was handled is weird to me. But ultimately, they're back at a place where he, maybe not top two, top three, but definitely a top four team on paper. And, uh, you know, as long as you're in the top four, anything can happen in the playoffs. And who knows? back in the finals um and then mitchell the other kind of big star who's now dude this is getting out of control with danny Ainge. they're asking for seven or eight first rounders uh to move mitchell now it should be remembered that a team can only trade four of their first rounders um in any deal so for example that's why you see a lot of four first three swaps kind of thing because if you have all your own picks and nobody else's all you can give up is four um that's what brooklyn gave up for james harden and that's what the Clippers, I think, gave up for Paul George. Um, the Knicks can trade up to eight picks, which is kind of why the seven and eight number is very specific to how much the Knicks have. Donovan Mitchell is a nice player. He's probably a top 25 player. Uh, he's three-time All-Star, never made All-NBA, but he's still only, I think, 25, 26 years old. What do you think about his fit in New York? Or I guess where else would you be looking to go? And are we? is this getting out of hand in terms of these trade packages? And that was leading It's getting question. out of hand for sure. I mean, obviously, they're going to start super high, classic negotiation 
tactic, but eight like that. That's not even that's starting like outside of your what is it Zopa? That's not even close to your Zopa. Um, no. And I don't know, man. Donovan Mitchell is is a nice player. I think weirdly he's got a more criticism than maybe is warranted in the last couple of years. I don't think, I think people forgot how good he was. They dismissed the bubble performance because it's the bubble, but that type of two guard is, is really valuable in the league. That being said, what's the plan with Brunson and Mitchell? And, and I've heard a lot of people say, Hey, you have to start somewhere, start getting talent. Um, and then building around that. But if you're going to pay a price of, it won't be eight, but even if it's six picks, I just don't know. I feel like New York is desperate, and and that team is going to be locked into a seven or eight seed, sure. But yeah, I, I just and, think and the draft is capital that, is not worth it. What's the deal going to look like, right? Because they don't want RJ Barrett, so you're going to give up salary in the form of Evan Fournier and I don't know what other salary, Derek Rose, right? It's basically Evan Fournier and Derek Rose to match the contracts, and then Quentin Grimes, Obi Toppin, maybe Emmanuel Quickly, and six first, like. Wh- yeah. What are you going to do with that roster? It's going to be bare bones beyond the starting lineup of Brunson and Mitchell, which is like a very, very small backcourt that's going to get roasted defensively. Barrett and Randall, who are inefficient gunners. And then Mitchell Robinson, who just got paid, but is a limited center. I just, yes, having Mitchell in New York is better than not, but certainly that this would be the step one of the New York Knicks reclamation project, right? They wouldn't end here. There was already talk about them potentially swapping Randall for Westbrook to try to get off that money sooner so that they could sign another guy next summer when there's a lot more free agents, including a certain uh, LeBron James available. Um, and now that would change my uh, you know thoughts on this these moves. But it's a dangerous game to play when you're setting yourself up for a year or two years from now because we've seen the Knicks do that with different cap space moves or different free agent moves that haven't panned out to bring that second guy. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't think there's a plan. And and I get the plan of get Mitchell, figure out you know what you can do next. I don't see an, a real path for them to becoming a, a top contender if they do make this deal. So I if you're stripping the roster completely and you're left with RJ Barrett, Mitchell, and Brunson that team's not going anywhere, and I don't know. I'm so sick of these Donovan Mitchell trade talks. I'm sick of trade talks in general, man. It's just like I'm like I just want to get to the the regular season already. Um, it's just too much listening to you know. There's always news today. Oh, KD has been quiet on on the trade front. Yeah, of course he's been quiet. Or teams are have stopped offering trades. Of course. Like, why does this continue to make news every single day? Yeah, and the Donovan Mitchell one. It's like how many times do you have to hear about a Tyler Hero, uh, back <laughs> Duncan package, Robinson. Right? Duncan Robinson package? Like it's Duncan Robinson's a negative asset. Let's start there. And Tyler Hero is going to expect a max contract in a year. You're gonna you feel comfortable with those two those two players on your cap sheet? I don't. So it's just bizarre. And like especially with this happening now with guys at three and four years contracts, three and four years left on their contract. There's no telling when this is going to end because any player could do this. Um, this is Durant's first trade request of his career in year 16, right? What if LeBron trades, you know, requests a trade, who the hell knows what's going to happen, right? He's like year 20. I can't risk this. You guys didn't move off for us. This team sucks. Like, you know, uh, Lonnie Walker and Austin Reeves are not taking us to the promised land. I want out. <laughs> 
what are they going to do? Because he'll walk it for nothing in a year. So then they have to trade him. And suddenly you got that circus. And like, again, LeBron's never requested a trade either. But at this point, I'm not really um, going to be surprised by anybody except Bradley Beal, of course, who who got a no trade clause, the only one of 10 in the entire history of the NBA. But um, all right. Anything else on the current player front or the summer league front? No, I mean, what else? What else? Is nothing else. I mean, there's nothing really happening. Kyrie is kind of in a standstill until the Durant situation gets solved or doesn't. Um, and there's really oh. no teams for Durant. The one thing I did want to talk about is uh, Harden. So Harden signed a two-year, oh, yeah. sixty-eight million player option. There, we had already heard about a week or two ago that he was going to sign a team-friendly deal, you know, based on what. Philly wanted to do in terms of other players. Uh, and and actually, I liked what he said in his interview. He was very candid about how he wasn't in great – or he was dealing with injuries last year. He was, he didn't play up to his full potential. He's going to come back better. You know, him and, and, and Bede have been hanging on the offseason. I have always been not a Harden supporter, but more pro-Harden than I think the average fan. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, if, if Harden – is right about the fact that last year was an anomaly and he can get back to that Brooklyn version he was. Philly's a team that it's kind of being slept on by everyone because for a lot of reasons, but I think that that vaults them into very strong contender. If Embiid can stay healthy, obviously all the other roster pieces continue to play well, but Hey, I credit thought, to yeah. credit to Harden for for you know recognizing how he wanted to prioritize winning over money. Not every player is going to do that. Not every player should do that. For him, he's made so much. He's just like, look, I just want to get the most competitive team possible. And also, what he's doing is like, let me take the fourteen million dollar pay cut this year. Maybe he has a wink wink deal to kind of take care of him next summer yep. after they already have Tucker and of course Daniel House on the roster. Philly's going to be great next year. Uh, I expect them to contend for the one seed, uh, like you said, especially if Embiid stays healthy. Harden, the big question mark is even in his best days of his whole life, he would always have moments in the playoffs where he looked pedestrian, he looked human. Now you have a different version of him, which is clearly not the Houston Harden or even the Brooklyn Harden. So what are you going to get in the playoffs? We saw him totally disappear versus Miami at times. <laughs> yeah. And Embiid with a broken face was not able to kind of come back and get, you know, sort of get it together quick enough. And that's been a common theme with him too. He's had multiple injuries through multiple playoffs. So I'm in a wait-and-see mode on Philly. I mean, I think this is judgment year again for Doc Rivers. And certainly for Joel Embiid, at some point, you got to get to round three if you consider yourself one of the best five players in the world. Like, Luka just did it. Jokic has done it once. Everyone else in that conversation has titles. Curry, LeBron, Durant, Giannis, and so Kawhi. And so now it's time to put up or shut up. Um, You can't cry about the MVPs anymore. Go do something in April, May, June. And the team is set up to, and if you think about the East – Outside of Boston and Milwaukee, I don't know who's really terrifying you if you're Philly. It's not like the West where there's six, seven, eight teams with like absolutely loaded levels of talent. I mean, this is their year, really. This is their year um, to make a true run because Harden's going to be 33 or 34 next year. Tucker's 39. At some point, you know, Embiid is creeping up towards 30 himself. At some point, it's go time. And I think this is it. I'm glad that um, they went for it, but I'm. I'm dubious on whether it'll work only because we haven't seen it yet. And I think in this case, I'm, I'm in prove it mode. Absolutely. But I think to your point, it's not like the West where there's 
eight to ten good teams. It just takes one or two to slip up, have an injury, like we saw with the Bucks last year, for them to all of a sudden find themselves in the finals. So yeah. Um, but yeah, anyways, that that I think was the big news, recent news. He signed that, finally signed that that yeah. deal. Yeah, but, and we talked uh, about this implication of the hard cap and the apron. I feel like this is look the education was last week and two weeks ago, and now it's we're seeing it play out in in real time. <laughs> so that's why they were able to do this because using a full MLE, which they did on Tucker, triggers the hard cap, which is why um, Harden had to take so much less money. So what do we do now? We got what two months? <laughs> Three months. Yeah, I think we deserve me, you, and Simmons are all off. Um, so kind of like the titans of the podcasting world, you know, you got to work out with something else in your ears. You got to walk to work with something else in your ears. But you know, we'll be back in a couple months. Um, maybe even we'll come back a little early and do some NFL stuff, depending on how good the commanders look. Let, let, let's leave the listeners with this: in absence of all the NBA podcasts, that I mean, many of them will still continue to pump out content, but there's going to be. You know, there's no Simmons. There's not going to be a lot of news to even talk about. What are you or your go-to podcast going to be? What I've been doing lately, because like at this point, I don't work out with music anymore, which is bad. I only work out with podcasts, which is odd, but I'm also not like a Olympic lifter where I need to be like so jacked up that I have to have like system of a down in my ear. But like, you but you just, hype yourself up with music. You always seem like a guy who's in the gym just feeling himself listening to like I do uh, put on by Kanye, you know, it's like actually that's more like my partying vibe. I hype myself up more partying with like I actually like if you had a party and you just put a podcast on, I would wouldn't mind that. But um <laughs> I think the party is where I'm going more music and the workouts because i'm like kind of dreading them i don't really like working out i do it because i have to that's when i need the time pass and the podcast serves better for that purpose uh to answer your question i don't know what i'm listening to because i don't want to hear rosillo's book clubs about the civil war you know (laughs) i don't need to hear any like early july fantasy football rankings that i don't really care about yeah too early i don't want to hear anything about baseball or college sports that's for sure and then i guess the one thing i would say is (laughs) I've been going back and listening to some of the old redraftables and book of basketball pods, which again, I've already heard. So I know what happens, but that's like something like mindless to be in my ear for like an hour. What about you? I don't know, man. I, I was thinking maybe fantasy, right? Cause that's starting to pick up, but it's still way too early. It's early. Um, yeah. To start even thinking about that. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I like murder podcasts, crime, true crime podcasts. Um, Oh yeah, I'm out on any of those like sort of like narrative stuff. Maybe try to learn something. Maybe something useful. I don't know. No, I'm not into that either. <laughs> actually, though, I will say, Plain English with Derek Thompson, the new Ringer Pod, is actually pretty good. What is it about? He just breaks down all of the like relevant social and cultural and political issues of of today's age. So like you know. One episode might be on Twitter and Elon Musk. The next episode might be on Roe v. Wade and, and sort of what does the Supreme Court ruling mean? The next episode could be like, hey, teens are reported to be as angsty and like sort of like depressed as they've ever been. Why is that? What can we do? Like, it's just like a variety of topics. But I think he does a really good job bringing on the experts, voicing his opinion, but doing so in a fair and balanced way. And then most importantly, kind of getting out of the way and letting sometimes people answer the questions and provide their expertise versus like being a blowhard and going off on topics he doesn't know that much about. 
Simmons has had I him on it. his pod a lot. He had him on a lot to talk about COVID. He's from the Atlantic, Derek Thompson. Yes, I do remember listening to those calls. I actually really yeah. enjoyed those pods because I like yeah, his so kind actually, of yeah, his tone his and his style. demeanor is good. And they brought him on to just start an actual podcast called Plain English, which I'm a fan of. I'm gonna add it to the rotation. It's a good suggestion. Yeah. So wait, what was this last one? I meant to listen, and I let's see. It was this is a very big topic. It says the world is on fire. Here's a realistic plan to save humanity. So that's a meatier topic than some of the more specific events he takes on. But yeah. All right. Nice. Well, that is a wrap for us, isn't it? Season three in the books. Thank you all for listening and being with us uh, throughout this uh, journey. I can't believe we're about to start our fourth NBA season. When we started this podcast, it was before COVID, before the bubble, before like a lot of different things in life. So pretty wild that we've gotten to this point. So been fun, man. Been a great, great three years. Looking forward to keeping it going. Yeah. And thanks to everyone still listening, still showing support, um, ragging us, telling us uh, our takes are horrible. Uh, this is why we do it. So um, we'll be back yeah. soon enough. But And one yeah. day we'll do uh, a strategy session um, and actually figure out different things to do for the pod uh, to, to sort of come up with new ideas for, for the upcoming season. Absolutely. All right. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Thick and Thin Hoops on all major podcast platforms. Please follow us on social media, Thick Thin Hoops on Instagram and Twitter. We will not talk to you next week. We will likely talk to you in a couple months unless there's a crazy Durant, Mitchell, or Kyrie trade to to discuss and break down. So thanks again, and uh, we'll see you soon.